This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Annalisa Cox about her eye-opening book titled The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. The Bone and Sinew of the Land tells the long-hidden stories of America's black pioneers, the frontier they settled, and their fight for the heart of the nation. It courageously unveils the lost history of the nation's first great migration. In building hundreds of settlements on the frontier, these black pioneers were making a stand for equality and freedom. Dr. Annalisa Cox is an award-winning historian of race relations in the 19th century Midwest and is currently a fellow at the Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. She currently helped to create two historical exhibits based on her original research at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, including one on African American pioneers. Dr. Annalisa Cox, welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Thank you. Um, so what what is it about your life experiences that kind of compelled you to do the work you do and kind of led you to write this book? Well, I should say first that I didn't think I was starting out to write this book. I I was led towards this research by work on my first book, mm. which is called A Stronger Kinship, which is a very different kind of book. It's 19th century American history, but it's on one particular community in the Midwest, which arose after the Civil War and was founded by African-American Civil War soldiers and white Civil War soldiers and all interesting hodgepodge of people, and they made a decision to create a community with radically harmonious race relations. Mm. Uh, And as I was researching this community, and I got to know over the years that I worked on this project, I got to know the families that lived in that community. Mm. And these are people who are just deeply rooted in the land. So this is a rural community to this day. It's primarily rural. in in the Midwest. And these are families who have lived on the same land since 1866. Wow. So just some really deep roots. But uh, as I got to know them and and we, we talked about their histories, it became apparent that actually this was their second or third American frontier. Mm -hmm. So these are descendants of long free African-Americans, some of whom can trace their free roots in the New World back to the 1600s. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they had actually, before they came to this little, little corner of Michigan after the Civil War, they'd actually been born in the Midwest. They had been recruited to fight in the Civil War in the Midwest. Uh, They had been recruited in the Midwest and then gone down south to fight. So I I hadn't really known about this particular population. I really, it was hard for me to think of the Midwest as a frontier. Mm. And I kept coming across references to it before the Civil War as the Great West 
or even just the West. Mm-hmm. And that made me think of the Rocky Mountains or California or something, right? right. So it's hard for us to think of the Midwest as, as a territory, as a frontier. But at one time it was. Right after the American Revolution, as our national constitution was being written, this massive piece of land, which we had won from the British as we fought the American Revolution, which would later become the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, were actually our first frontier. This Hmm. is before the Louisiana Purchase. This is before so much of what we think of as America. And this is our frontier. And so in 1787, when a group of men were fighting and wrangling over the national constitution, a smaller group of men were were working on writing the basically the constitution for this region of the country, which they were calling the Northwest Territory. And in many ways, this document was more radical and more revolutionary than our national constitution because it made this entire region free from slavery. Mm. And this this was really revolutionary because if you think about it, in 1776, when we wrote, you know, the Declaration of Independence was written, there was no North, there was no South. Mm. There were just 13 slave colonies. Every single colony that went to war against the British held people enslaved within it. Mm. Now, there were also free people of African descent who were succeeding and working and propertied both in the North and the South in 1776. But you have to realize that in 1776, there was, there were no free enslaved states. There was just, there was just slave colonies. Mm-hmm. So just a few years later, we surprisingly enough win the Revolutionary War and a group of seven white men sit down and decide to create this document which sets aside the largest portion of the New World to ever be set aside as free from slavery up until that point. So so what made them want to do that? What, what, what was, if you could like describe like, it was a revolutionary war. What, what was it, the spirit of that? that yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting time. We, I think it's, I, I fall, I fall into this trap as well. It's so easy for us to think about as we go further back in time that things must have been worse or more conservative, right? We even have this term constitutional conservatism, right? Mm -hmm. Which assumes that things like um, the 1950s decision of Brown versus Board of Education to integrate schools Mm -hmm. was a modern or liberal project, right? Right. Um, However, what I discovered is that the roots of our nation, and I'm I'm not talking about the founding fathers here, Okay, because that's that's a whole different that's a good point yeah. kettle of fish, and <laughs> and um, I yeah I have an issue with a lot of them actually. <laughs> I'm talking about our founding citizens, <laughs> our founding citizens who fought in the Revolutionary War, and then were working on this crazy project called the Democratic Republic. Right? I mean, we're so used to this now, but if you think about it, in 1783, when 1783, 1784, you know, the Revolutionary War is over. This is a, a nutty idea that you're not going to have monarchs, mm-hmm. right? You're right. not going that that actually there can be a society which is not hierarchical in that way. Mm-hmm. And the question of equality 
became forefront for a whole lot of America's founding citizens. Mm-hmm. And the question of equality was was based in some Enlightenment-era ideas, which are, I think, revolutionary even today, right? So the idea that about gender equality mm-hmm. or racial equality. And the the founding citizens of this nation were judges and people of African descent and people of European descent were understanding that in order to create a democratic republic, you had to remove prejudice from the equation. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. it wasn't going to work. Prejudice would poison a democracy, poison the idea of a a fair and equal citizenry where everyone could have the chance to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So they understood a, that slavery was a real problem within this notion, and B, that prejudice, they didn't use the term racism, that's a 20th century word, but prejudice in their words was very much like we think of racism, mm-hmm. but they they had some very sophisticated ways of thinking and talking about this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just white folks who were doing this, it was African-descended people who mm-hmm. were free and propertyed, who were discussing this, taking it to court, um, and actually voting to ratify our nation's constitution. There were African-descended men who voted to ratify our our nation's constitution. They were our founding citizens. So this was a time period which was truly revolutionary. I called it the fervor for freedom, Mm -hmm. which is a little hard to say. But, um, (laughs) you know, this idea that we needed to be free, we needed to be equal. Not everybody held this close to their heart, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people did. So many people did that the Northwest Territory um, was not only created to be free of slavery, but to have equal voting rights. Wow, yeah. This is 1787. (laughs) Now, you had to be male. Mm -hmm. You had to be over the age of 21. Mm -hmm. You had to to own property. Mm -hmm. And you had to be born in the United States. But that was... That was what well, you had to be if you were white, too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The, that's what defined citizenship. Mm-hmm. And this founding document of this region, which was written in 1787, does not have the word white in it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is a deliberate omission, because mm-hmm. if you put the word white in to define citizenship, you are excluding, you're immediately working prejudice into that prejudice, document. Right. And you are excluding people from equal rights under the law, equal rights, uh, equal voting rights, equal anything. And this was done very deliberately because the language of the 1787 ordinance closely mimics the language of the North Carolina state constitution, which was written during the Revolutionary War, in which they removed the word white from who could vote, in order to open up the vote. And guess what? Landed free African-American men in North Carolina started voting. Mm. And this meant that by 1792, when George Washington ran for president, for his second term as president, not only did the Northwest Territory, which of course covers this vast region Mm -hmm. of America at this time, but also, the vast majority of American states had equal voting rights mm. for black and white men, including a number of slave states, North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky had just redacted theirs. They just backlashed, mm-hmm. but they had it for about six years. And some states 
um, and scholars are just beginning to understand this, but some states, they think Kentucky, but they're sure of New Jersey, actually had women voting. This is the 18th century. Hmm. So this is a real frontier for historians to be learning about. And I want to stress, this is something that historians have not done a very good job studying. Yeah, because it's, it's amazing that just the title, you have Black Pioneers. <laughs> like, really? I was thinking like, okay, so they were already free before they went there? Or did some escape bondage and get there? Um, and while they were going there, were whites at the same time going or were, how did that look? Like when it was first being populated, how was that possible and what did it look like? Yeah, um, that's a great question. We, we, we so much think of the frontier and as pioneers as being post-Civil War, like we think of African-American exodusters in Nebraska and Kansas, but this is, this is pre-Civil War. This is when slavery still existed in America. This is starting, this first great migration is happening just after the American Revolutionary War is ended. Mm. And when I started this project, the general assumption among historians was that this region, which we now call the Midwest, but which was once the Northwest Territory, so those Mm. five states of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin, had five, maybe six, settlements that were home to propertied, pioneering African-American farmers Hmm. before the Civil War. By the time this book went to press, I'd found over 330 settlements. Wow. This is not individual farmers. These are communities. And Mm -hmm. many of these farmers were, by the standards of their day, extremely wealthy. Wow. And extremely successful. Can I ask you something about that? Uh, Sorry? Can I ask you one question about that? Just to get people's heads wrapped around when you say extremely wealthy. How would you compare them that today? If they were living today, what what would we say? Maybe not the dollars, but how would their comfortability look? How would that look to to us? Right. So it's it's very difficult to define this by dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're talking about 1810, I mean, this is Jane Austen's time, Mm -hmm. right? So this this is before factories before the city of Chicago or the city of Detroit even existed, Mm -hmm. right? So the definition of success at this time was to own good land and farm it well. Mm -hmm. That was was the ideal. So as I say in the front of my book where I have this map that locates these settlements. It's amazing. It's like a a million polka dots, guys. Just to let you guys know when you open the book, it's it's a lot of uh, settlements, but anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, basically the Midwest before the Civil War was integrated. Mm-hmm. The land, the land was integrated. Um, but uh, so in terms of success, a, lo- a fair number of these farming settlements had one or more African-American farmer in them whose wealth in property in horses, in buildings, outbuildings, barns, equipment, placed them in the top 5 to 10% of wealthy people in America, black or white. Wow. Yeah. So this is, this is sizable wealth. Some of them I define as landed gentry. Mm. So these are, I know it's a very British term, like <laughs> Downton Abbey or something like that. 
But this is what we're getting close to. So if you have, um, you know, a member of the Allen family in Illinois or Alexander, uh, uh, Thornton Alexander or Clemens family, or there's so many of them, I, I can't even, I don't even have the list memorized mm. in my head. There's so many of them, mm-hmm. but who were what I call the super wealthy. So they are owning sort of they and their extended family or just one, this one family was owning close to a thousand acres of land. So, so which this is, this, if we think about this is puts them basically in charge of the labor of yeah, most of the people okay. in their County. Right. Wow. Um, white or black. Cause in order to harvest before the reapers, before tractors, right. Mm-hmm. In order to harvest 900 acres of grain, you had to hire most of the people, white or black, in your county at harvest time. Mm. So these were con- economic connections that were being created by these wealthy farmers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I'm hearing it correctly, all, when the Northwest, the Great West is being populated, it's a mix of black and white, but everybody is treated like a human and <laughs> in a sense, and there's no discrimination. Well, we, we know when it comes to gender, it's kind of different, but... The black people were owning property at the same levels as white people could own property. So you had a mix of black and white, very wealthy people that would help then help the community who weren't farmers, you know, help build that land and create community and create an economy. Is that how is that how we can look at that? Correct. Mm. What the caveat being, of course, there was still there was still discrimination. There was mm-hmm. still prejudice mm-hmm. and one of the things that I think surprised some prejudiced whites who were coming out to this region is how successful, how quickly these African-descended farmers were rising. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting report by an Oxford professor from 1833, and he's traveling around this region in 1833, and he's already coming across long-established and successful African-American farming communities hmm. by 1833. So that wow. means they'd been coming out around 1800, 1810 to the frontier to settle. Wow. And he said, and I've got this quote in my book, but he says, when, when it was the frontier stage and there weren't that many people and whites were relying on, often relying on these more knowledgeable African-American farmers for assistance and helping them to build a cabin or, you know, the, uh, sort of looking to them for help and for information, there was less conflict. Hmm. But as these African-American farms grew, grew in success, and and he said their families flourished, then the jealous eye of whites turned towards them. And so there started to be backlash. And Ohio was the first. Ohio became the first state carved out of this region in 1803. And the first thing that the white majority did in that state was add the word white back into who could vote. So the first Ohio Constitution reverses the Northwest Territorial Ordinance. Uh, and I've talked to some legal historians who yeah. said they still don't understand how or why that happened. Right, yeah. They obviously didn't reverse the statute on slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, some tried, mm-hmm. to be fair, mm-hmm. but they, they did not. But they reversed, they allowed prejudice to enter into the founding document of the state of Ohio. And then every single state carved out of this region followed suit. Gosh, before before we get onto that, I, I can I can think of some of my audience saying, OK, 
this is the Great West, and uh, America is still young, and that means that Native Americans are still on the land in great numbers. And we know that relationship between the African Americans and Native Americans is a complex one. You know, African Americans sometimes live harmoniously with the Native Americans. Sometimes the Native Americans maybe held African Americans in bondage. So what was going on with black pioneers? Are they also fighting the Native Americans for this land? We're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome to America. 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 Man, I die for America. I served my time for America. Got shot, shot back, went to war, got back, and ain't nobody give a jack in America. I could have lost my life, why I lost my wife? I can't even get right in my homeland. Cold sweats, whole text, paranoid, looking out for a threat in my own land. I was trained in America. How they get up in the planes in America? Flew right into the buildings, taking out civilians, people getting killed in America. And I'm still in America. Though America ain't feeling me, I went to war for this country. Turn around, came home, and you grilling me? When y'all free here, saying you don't wanna be here, well, you probably couldn't breathe here if I didn't load a couple magazines here. Y'all just complaining America, I'm jumping out of military planes from America Hey, I was made in America, that's why I'm out here saving America I got a brother in the cemetery now cause he wanted y'all safe And everybody want the freedom but nobody want to hear about faith We bled for America, to keep y'all fed in America But what's the point of talking, a lot of y'all don't really even care, America Welcome to America. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. What was going on with black pioneers? Are they also fighting the Native Americans for this land? Mm, that's a really complicated question to answer. I'll see if I could do it simply. Okay, so first things first, we need to be very clear okay. that for the long free African descended people coming out to this frontier. Like um, uh, uh, the Morrises, mm-hmm. um, the Connors. There's 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 a number of these really old. The Noel Coxes, the Roundtrees, the Goans. They their roots go back in the New World mm-hmm. so deeply that that while the state is defining them as black or colored and using that definition to take away their equal rights. They are, in reality, multiracial people. Mm-hmm. So they, for all we know, they're Igbo, they're mm-hmm. Narragansett, yeah. they're Scots, right? I mean, they are America right. in, in themselves. Right. <laughs> they represent almost all American people in, embodied, embodied. So they're coming to this frontier as Americans, and their project is to own land and farm it. Well, that project is in opposition to the indigenous people who mm-hmm. are there already mm-hmm. because they do not want to see that happen. Most of them do not want to see that happen. So there was conflict. And in fact, some of the earliest families coming out 
both to the Midwestern frontier and to the Southern frontier, the Tennessee frontier, the Arkansas frontier, these free African-Americans, they are in direct conflict with indigenous people. So mm-hmm. there is a African-descended regiment raised by William Henry Harrison in the Wabash River Valley in the Indiana Territory to fight indigenous people during the War of 1812. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There are Indi- and we think we know of the Buffalo Soldiers, yeah. right? But this is generations before the wow. Buffalo Soldiers. Yeah, right. You have the Tans, who were Indian agents, who literally stood next to William Henry Harrison as he parleyed with Tecumseh, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is a very very complicated history, right. and as I note in my book, it. it there is no one single definition in this region of how African descended people interacted with indigenous people. This mm-hmm. is such a complex, complex and varied population. Yeah. So earlier, during the French period, when the French had this region around the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. there were a whole, there were a fair number of African descended French people who were, DuSable was far from alone. So we think, you know, we know uh, DuSable was the original founder of Chicago, mm-hmm. African-descended French. Um, but DuSable could well have been second or third generation Afro-French mm-hmm. in this region. And he's also indigenous, mm-hmm. right? He didn't just come out. He's not a virgin birth, just sort of coming out of the soil. <laughs> he had a mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. He had a father. They had a mother. They had a father. Records of Afro-French people um, in this region date back at least to the 1720s, coming up the Mississippi River and moving from the Mississippi River east to settle this region. Mm. So by the time the United States is created, there are already Afro-French and indigenous fur traders who are traveling across this vast region. Mm. And living in this region um, for, you know, a, a, a generation or two before the United States is even created. And their project is very different because they're marrying into indigenous uh, tribes. They mm-hmm. are they are multilingual. They speak French. They speak English. They speak numerous indigenous languages. They're incredibly sophisticated. They can trade with the French. They can trade with the indigenous people. Like, these are unbelievable sort of Atlantic world citizens, mm-hmm. some of whom had had ancestors who were born on Caribbean islands, like Saint-Domingue, who mm-hmm. later, later yep. became Haiti. Mm-hmm. Or um, So they are they are new new world Atlantic world citizens in, in a really deep way. And that's another area of history <laughs> that historians are only just beginning to uncover. It's incredible. It is incredible. I keep telling people like if American history was taught in a way that if we have that information and it's been like vetted and so forth, if it's taught in school, I think people will love history. You know? Cause, yeah, well, oh my gosh. Right, because it's been, History has been segregated. Yes. Like history has been, I don't, I don't know, I, I was talking to um, an amazing 90-year-old lawyer in Indianapolis, and um, she was saying to me, she said she hates the F and the O. And I said, the F and the O? Mm-hmm. She said, I hate that whole thing about the first and the only. Oh, yeah. When you're talking about when you're talking about African American history, right? Mm-hmm. It's always, everybody's always talking right. about the first and the only. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And whenever 
if you ever hear anybody, any historian talking about, oh, this was the first, or mm-hmm. this was the only, mm-hmm. question it. Yes. Question it. Just start <laughs> poking at that a little bit. Exactly. But of course, you know, there's been this movement, and it's needed, mm-hmm. talking about Hollywood so white, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But bluntly, the way that history has been presented in school textbooks, and my esteemed colleague, uh, Donald Yakovone who just retired from Harvard, is doing amazing work with this uh, in American history textbooks. But the way that American history has been presented has been to create a segregated history. It has almost violently removed (laughs) people of color from the American past when they were there in the first place. Absolutely. then it gives this weird concept that somehow diversity is an add-on. Right. When in reality, diversity in America was the baseline. Exactly. Yes. And, and homogeneity is the violent cre- violently created add-on in our nation. Now, once homogeneity is created, once segregation is created, it takes real work to undo. Undo. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the challenges this history is facing, is that it's it is going to take a pretty major mind shift Mm -hmm. for a lot of Americans to think of early American history and this region as being once upon a time being diverse. Yeah. I think something you did that was great, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, you took, uh, you know, just a little creative license to embellish and characterize the behaviors, the thoughts, the emotions of the African-Americans, uh, in the great West, um, and what they would have experienced. For example, you write to people about a couple called uh, Kizia and Charles or Daniel and Nancy, and you took an, a, you know, an omnipotent role to describe their feelings and thoughts. I, I thought that was incredible. And what were your intentions in doing something like this? Because mm. it didn't read like a text. I, I liked how you made me feel what the characters are feeling. What was your intention? Well, my intention was to try to not make this a boring book, right? <laughs> I think that, I mean, one of, there's a lot of people who hate history and they hate history for a reason. Yeah. Right? It's, just, it's just kind of boring. I think the best compliments I've received on this book is that um, it reads like a novel. Yeah. Um, it Or it feels like you're watching a movie. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to be very careful here. I am not a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am this this book has eighty pages of citations. So yes, it does. <laughs> I am very. I don't make anything up. Right. I I when I I I try not to. Very very hard. I try not to get into anybody's heads because mm-hmm. I can't. Like I'm. I don't know what they were thinking. Right. So I I do. I say things like maybe they did or right. uh, possibly just to lead the reader into thinking about that, but not asserting it. So never once do I put words in anybody's mouth or thoughts in their head. Um, I don't don't think I actually have that right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So what I do, however, uh, for example, if it's January in Tennessee, I will assume it's cold. Mm Uh, like, you know, like I don't, I didn't actually go to a weather report to see if it was actually cold that day in Tennessee, but I'm assuming if it's right. January 30th, you know, in the yeah. 1820s in Tennessee, it's cold. Yeah. Um, I assume that if somebody has a farm, there will be a rooster on that farm and that rooster will crow in the morning. Yeah. yeah you, I do make that You did assumption. a good job of like when, let's say 
one of the couples got to this land that was uncultivated. You did a good job right. of like describing what it would feel to do that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm tired reading how much work they got to do. It was, it was those things that make you realize how much they were part of this land. You know, it, it, it really, instead of just saying uh, there was uh, five settlers and they settled in, in this part of the area, you actually really talked about how it would feel to even settle that land. I thought that was amazing. Well, I'm so glad you liked that part because I spent a lot of time researching <laughs> it. Took, it took a lot of work because, you know, I don't know what it feels like mm-hmm. to hold like to hold a plow <laughs> and dig that blade into the earth behind an ox team uh-huh. and try to plow virgin land for the first time that's never been plowed. Like, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> so I actually had to do that research. And mm. I actually talked to some really interesting and kind of eccentric people who are sort of back to the landers and who are doing that work um, with with ox teams mm-hmm. to ask them, what does it feel like? What is it like for the oxen? What is it like for the human beings? What does that actually... I, um, that stuff is actually footnoted. Uh, I didn't make, yeah. I didn't make a, I didn't know that in order to plow one acre of land with a single blade plow behind a team, you have to walk nine miles. Yeah. See, that's when I put the book down. I'm like, I'm, I'm tired. Just that, I, that right there, <laughs> nine miles. No, no way. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of work. Yeah. And yet African descended people were out there doing it. And, it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. but let's be clear here. Some of these people had been forced to do that work, mm-hmm. violently forced to do that work mm-hmm. while enslaved. Mm-hmm. And I, I kept thinking if for the first 20 or 30 years of one's life, one didn't even, one couldn't choose what you were doing with your life. You didn't, you, yeah. by law, you didn't even own your own labor or your own body. And through your own work, you became free and managed to purchase land through your own labor to stand on your own two feet, owning your own body, owning your own land, owning that ox team and that plow, Yeah, like to, to press that plow into the land, to start walking behind that plow, mm-hmm. knowing that you're starting a future for yourself, that must have been it was hard work, but it must have also been a great joy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I liked about your book. You made, you show, you, you really made them connected to the land. It made me connected to that land. It made me feel like, yes, I'm working hard to make this my own because I've been doing this for someone else for nothing for so long. Now I get the mm-hmm. chance to do it. So you putting that, that emotion behind the characters. And then when we get into, you know, what happens when, people start coming into the land that were jealous of what they had. You feel like I, I, you felt like you own this land as well. And when you started talking about how this is starting to be taken away from them, you really felt that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you felt that because I certainly did too. It's a great injustice that was happening as the century progressed. This was an astounding region. There would not be a Midwest. There would not be the nation's breadbasket. There would not be this region if it were not for African-descended pioneers. It's just, it wouldn't have happened. And the ways in which 
violence was brought against them, very real violence, you know, sort of point of a gun and sometimes even a cannon. Right. But but it, it more devastating was the violence of the courts, the violence of state constitutions mm. against these African-descended people. So after they'd arrived, after they had become successful, the racism that arose in this region was in the face of black success, yes, not the face of black failure. Mm. And this is, you know, we, we can talk about fake news, right? But <laughs> there was fake news at 150 years ago. Oh, gosh, too, yeah. You talk right? about the media. That, yeah, the media back then. Oh, my gosh. So there was a lot of there was a lot being made up mm-hmm. about African-descended people in this region. And even during the Lincoln-Douglas debates that occur across Illinois in the 1850s, you have Douglas. This is not Frederick Douglass. This is Douglas the Little Giant, right? Who's <laughs> <laughs> going up against Lincoln. He's up there, and he is debating with Lincoln and saying, basically, he's, he's using all of these racist slurs against equality, on, he's standing on land which was, you know, settled by, you know, which which had some of its earliest pioneers were, were black, mm-hmm. who, who you know, defended this nation against the British during the mm-hmm. War of 1812. Like, mm-hmm. he's standing on this land and he's using all these slurs and he's saying, they're, well, hmm, sounds a little familiar. <laughs> they're murderers, they're rapists, right. they're lazy, they're no good. We need to have anti-immigration laws mm-hmm. against them. Mm-hmm. And Illinois and Indiana are the first states in this United States to create anti-immigration laws, and they are aimed at people with brown skin. They are aimed at people of African descent, and they are bans. So they are basically saying no more people of African descent can cross our state lines, work in our state, or are, right, whites are saying this because they're calling they're they're thinking of the state as theirs, right? right? This is right. white supremacy in action. Even though the white men who are creating these laws may well have arrived there after the African American pioneers. Right. I found that an interesting. Like like you said, they would put laws in to stop more African Americans from coming to the Northwest Territory, but at the same time, they're trying to make these laws to get people off their land, like the audacity to tell them this isn't their land and and if you can like i i know there were probably uh african-americans who refused to leave if you could talk about what what was the consequence of not leaving and and if they did decide to leave where did they go we'll be right back yeah yeah are you reading my mind? Go inside my inner thoughts and stay in touch with the world. Yeah. Are you seeing the signs? Whether or not it's first sight, like falling in love with a girl. Uh, we are, we are the night I'm on my grind. Uh, the sun is still shine while they clutching their pearls. Now we never cast before the swine. You stuck in this world to the trap, make you spill that wine. Back. <laughs> I'm king of this castle. You thirsty for them designer drugs inside of them capsules. <laughs> Now as far as these raps go, they everywhere like the signs seen by the black crows Niggas kicking coke, raps from the crack era Make me wanna go back to the fact checkers Make me wanna throw back like a classic record Old school, grab a tool like Black and Decker Seeing the sound Reading my mind Seeing the sound Or you reading my mind Seeing the sound Or you reading my mind 
the signs, reading your mind, seeing the signs. Life gon' pass you by if you don't recognize the signs. The signs. Life's gon' pass you by if you don't recognize the signs. The signs. The signs. I never walk around blind. I keep my eyes wide. Play the game and never catch me from the sidelines. Every day I put in work without a time card. The scene changed similar to a montage. Skin tone keep you on the wrong side of the law. Pigmentation divided and conquered us all. The media just shares the mediocre. And real heroes just do it for the culture. Read my mind and realize I'm a visionary, revolutionary. They want me in the cemetery. When you at the root like Mr. Schrader, you fly, they be quick to swatch you. And as I see you're erecting on the wall, my people are fighting withdrawal. Social networks keeping us distracted And pharmacies making mutants out the masses Put on your glasses, uh, get a clear view If you ain't got a dollar, they can't hear you These are lessons to prepare you Shonda Rhimes tried telling y'all America's a scandal And as I see destruction on the day to day My key takeaway is that I gotta make a way And if I plant seeds, I wanna see them grow Teach them all I can before I go The signs, life's gonna pass you by if you don't recognize the signs. Uh. The signs, yes. Yeah. The uh. signs, trendsetter, no vendettas. Just trying to keep my pen better than whoever's supposedly most clever. Hip hop, did you write If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond, do us a favor go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I, I know there were probably uh, African Americans who refused to leave. If you could talk about what what was the consequence of not leaving, and and if they did decide to leave, where did they go? So luckily, no state constitutions were created which made it illegal for African Americans to own land in the mm, Midwest. Okay. That was one line that white lawmakers in the end, never crossed. Although in Indiana, they came terrifyingly close and it took a really uh, concerted petition effort from whites and blacks to keep that from happening. Although that that 1850s Indiana constitution was devastating in its anti-immigration laws, which I should stress were not lifted after the Civil War. They were not lifted until 1881. Mm. So African-Americans who had been first in that region before statehood, who had fought in the Civil War to keep this nation together and to end slavery, were still not being treated as equal citizens in the state of Indiana after Mm -hmm. the Civil War. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the question of who belongs where, right, of belonging, of equality, of citizenship... These are all issues that did not die with the Civil War. Right. These are issues and these are questions that have been dealt with by within our nation since the very founding days. And we're still dealing with them today. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to get this history out there, because this is history that is haunting our country yeah. in many ways without us knowing it. Right. 
Right. Yeah, you did it. You did a good job of talking about not only were black people successful and 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 helping the economy of that of that of the um, Great West. You also talk about how there were many schools that were integrated, you know, where uh, even people on the board, black, white, female, whatever, they all have voting rights on the board. Um, <laughs> and and everything was going well. But then you said as time over time, people started getting jealous and started changing that. So just knowing how we first started is incredible in certain places, right? Um, right. Um, and then how that just changed. And I think what was interesting, and I think this is what a lot of people learn in school. Um, uh, you know, you talk about how many African-Americans, you know, in the Northeast, you know, were leaving for the Northwest because of uh rising racism and anti-blackness you know we don't think of the north as a place of uh violence toward african-americans we, we don't really learn that in school we learned that uh anti-black violence is a southern thing right but right talk about what led to the anti-black violence uh and the resulting you know african-american migration to the northwest northwest because that was that 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 helped kind of populate the great west as well with a lot of black people as well yes so one of there's many myths that are laid over the landscape of America, mm-hmm. but one of them is this sort of post-Civil War myth that about the North and the South, right? And in some ways, the North has not had to confront its own history because so many whites say, well, you know, we're in the North, we fought for the Union, mm-hmm. we didn't have slavery, um, all of which is a little complicated, but, <laughs> uh, but actually there was a period of massive advancement for equal rights in the North and in the cities of the North, and then a period of backlash, which hit almost every major city of the North in the 1830s. Um, The 1830s was a really terrible, terrible decade in the American North, and it was the... It's so odd. We think of the other myth is that African Americans before the Civil War in the North were urban, mm-hmm. and they were um, sort of by the eighteen twenties or eighteen thirties. They were majority urban in the Northeast, which was an earlier settled region. Right. But you have to remember that the vast majority of Americans, black or white, were rural until the nineteen twenties. Mm-hmm. So. Acting as if the only history that matters for African Americans in the North is the urban history overlooks right. so many African Americans yeah. in the rural regions, many of whom were propertied and entrepreneurial business owners. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the most successful and important whaling industry was the harpoon makers, the blacksmiths who made harpoons, mm-hmm. right? So we think of these, these whalers who went out from Nantucket and stuff. Well, the most successful and the most highly regarded blacksmith creating and inventing the the best harpoons was an African-American, free African-American blacksmith in Connecticut. Oh. Like, so there, there's just all of these, like all of these myths are so complicated. Yeah. So the cities of the North, I, I kept thinking, it's not a, a great analogy, but it's the closest I could think of. I kept on thinking of that horrific, thing that happened in Germany in the 1930s, Kristallnacht, where Nazis attacked Jewish-owned businesses and um, synagogues and 
broke broke their windows and uh, burned them. Our nation, the cities of our nation, this happened in every, you know, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, Cincinnati. Uh, I mean, I, I, the list goes on and on, mm-hmm. and I've got a, lo- a fairly long list, but this has not been something that has been very well unpacked by nice. historians. I think the last major book to be done on this was the 1970s. Wow. and. There's now so much more opportunity for this research, but the nation was basically swept in the North by an extreme level of racist violence where there were lynchings and murders and entire middle-class African-American neighborhoods were, were attacked, burned to the ground, churches, meeting halls, schools uh, were, were torched. Uh, during this period. And this went hand in glove with a reversal of equality. So Philadelphia was hit by two, maybe even three of these massive racist riots where whites are rising up to destroy the roots of black success, to destroy integration, to destroy equality. And in 1838, the white majority in Pennsylvania voted to reverse equal voting rights mm. for African-American men and to keep them from the vote. So this is this kind of on-the-ground violence, which was actually, it wasn't just mobs, and this is one of the things that makes me frustrated is that a lot of, like when you look at the online stuff about the Cincinnati race riot of 1829, and there were actually three um, there was 1829, 1836, and 1841. They keep talking about, oh, unemployment or the Irish immigrants or something, yada, yada, whatever. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> in reality, these were well-managed, well-funded, well-organized mob actions that were fomented by the media uh-huh. through newspapers mm-hmm. and newspaper editors. And in some cases, these newspaper editors would work for weeks on this, <sighs> and then they would say, if if you want to get rid of these, you know, I won't say the slur, right, yeah. in our midst, meet at this time in this place, bring your torches, wow. bring your weapons, <laughs> and we will march on this neighborhood. Wow, right? yeah. This is not, this is, um, it is a devastating aspect of our nation's past. Yeah. But I believe with Desmond Tutu in South Africa that we we cannot have reconciliation without having truth. Right. Truth is really important. And the truth is that while there has been massive movements to create prejudice and institute prejudice in our laws, in our constitutions by, by certain whites, never once has those gone unresisted or unfought. Right. And people of African descent and their white allies have at every turn and at every step resisted this, fought against it, and they've sometimes been successful. And, and we have to remember, like, that, that radical or revolutionary 1787 Northwest Territorial Ordinance with mm. its equal voting rights and its no slavery it was written by seven white men. Right? Right. I mean, it's like, this is not, this is not about white versus black. That's, that color line was a violently constructed right. It was a uh, lot of activity. Cultural norm <laughs> being created by white supremacists right. 
in the 1820s and 1830s in this nation. And uh, and unfortunately, just looking at the current state, when you think of the these these states you're talking about, most black people think there's not many black people there. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't even you don't think when we think of the Northwest, we don't really think of black communities, right? <laughs> so no, we, the, we, like yeah, when this is the true for whites or blacks, even white historians mm-hmm. have assumed that the Midwest, particularly the rural Midwest, was homogeneously mm-hmm. white. Yeah, but it a it was not, and b it's still is not. Mm. As, as I traveled around and did research in these communities, some of which, to be sure, do not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. The 1850 Fugitive Slave Act was a particular devastation yeah. to the states along the Ohio River, right. um, as were these anti-immigration laws. Can you talk a little upheld. bit about that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that was a part of the book that got scary to me as we started, you started really talking about Kizia and Charles and Daniel and Nancy and how it felt like constantly whenever they're doing their activities, you know, they, they always felt like they had to make sure where their children were at all times because people would come yeah. around uh, um, and slavers would dress as justice of the peace and would just start snatching people up. It became like a horror story, you know? Um, yeah. You, you did it a good terrifying. job laying that out. Yeah. So the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act was a federal law passed which said, you know, I know in the Civil War they always talk about, in the Civil War narrative, they always talk about states' rights, right? Mm-hmm. The Civil War was about states' yeah, rights. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, let's let's be really clear. with states' rights to have slaves. Exactly. Okay? <laughs> that, let's just say that first. <laughs> the, the white pro-slavery Southern elite were huge fans of a strong federal government mm. because if you have decided that human beings can become property and that property decides that it is no longer property and is going to find its freedom and its citizenship in another state, then guess what? You're not going to be a huge fan of states' rights (laughs) because you want to be able, as an enslaver, to put your sticky fingers Mm -hmm. into another state where a human being may have been living for 20 years owning property, paying taxes, maybe even voting, Mm -hmm. and say to that state, whether it's Wisconsin or Massachusetts, no, that is not a citizen. Mm -hmm. That is merchandise. Mm -hmm. And that property belongs to me. So the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act strengthened the federal rule and hurt states' rights in the North. And some of the more devastating things that it said was it got rid of habeas corpus. So mm-hmm. if you were of African descent and you were living in a northern state, whether you're, um, you know, uh, Nancy Lyles or uh, Kizia Greer, all, a white person could come up to you on the street and say, hey, you look like you ran away from my plantation. Mm-hmm. They can then physically drag you to the local justice of the peace, who was a federal representative, who was then paid double to find you a uh, refugee from slavery rather than a free person. Hmm. So there's every incentive for that white law person to take take away your freedom. You have no recourse to the courts. 
you have no recourse to a trial by jury, even though the Northwest Territorial Ordinance said and stated clearly that all people should have that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the original founding law of this region. And to make matters worse, in some of these states, like Indiana and Illinois, African-Americans had been barred from the courts. They had been to- There were literally laws on the books which said, if you were of African descent, you could not testify against a white person in court. Wow. Which meant that you lost your voice, you'd lost your oath. Right. And this had a lot of ramifications, not just for the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, but imagine, you know, you're black-landed gentry, you own 900 acres of land, you own, you know, 100 dairy cattle, uh, you know, you are very, very wealthy. And a white farmer moves into the area, and they have a lot of money, and maybe they came from Connecticut or something, and they Connecticut, and they've decided they want your farm. So all they do is is they, you know, say to a friend in Missouri, come on over and grab this farmer and, and say that he ran away from you. Hmm. So that's one option, right? And that actually happened for one of the wealthiest men in Indianapolis hmm. who happened to be black. Somebody did that who was well. jealous of him. So there's that. But then they can also just, if you and your family are sitting down to dinner and you're, you're African descended and you're sitting down to dinner in your beautiful, large brick farm, mansion farm, not, I'm not going to call it farmhouse because a lot of these people have mansions. <laughs> and, um, you're sitting down to dinner and you look out your window and you see a group of white men walking into your barn and walking out with your best team uh, of oxen. Yeah. Now, I guess you could shoot them and some black men did mm-hmm. and they got away with it because, you know, it's trespassers. Mm-hmm. But if the only people who witnessed those white men taking those, that ox team, were of African descent, they cannot go to court they cannot go to court and say these three. We witnessed these three white men taking our ox team. Mm. So then, a white, because by the then by the this means by the 1850s, African descended entrepreneurs lost that right. It's very hard to run a business, farm or otherwise, well, yeah. if you don't have recourse to the courts. Right, because if you try to go and address that with whoever took it then those people just go and say that, you know, they fear for their life and, you know, these people try to hurt them. And then that whole black family's in danger now, right? There's no witness. Right. Uh, right. So a lot of African descended people were selling their farms in Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana and moving. They didn't want to move to Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about these, these are farmers, right? So uh, climate makes a difference. The, yeah, the climate, right. Right. Um, what you know to grow and how you know how to grow it. And they they needed to have really good land. But some of them were moving to Michigan and Wisconsin. There's like this third wave of movement um, where uh, the population in some African-American farming communities in southern Michigan doubled during the 1850s wow. because of these basically these refugees from this these unjust oh, right. laws. But I should stress here that while this was going on in a lot of these states, there were pockets of resistance to it. That pockets and and regions of resistance that were seemed to be stronger and more effective than existed in the Northeast. How did they resist? The Northeast. So there, um, through a concerted effort in 1849, African-Americans who 
had these incredibly effective black convention movement where they would, or colored convention movement, as they were called, mm-hmm. um, were gathering yearly to petition governments to give them back their voting rights, which had been stolen from them, um, give them back equal rights. And in Ohio in 1849, um, African-Americans and their white allies were allies were actually able to roll back some of these laws. Hmm. In other regions, um, also in Ohio, you had the first African-American in the United States elected to political office. Hmm. And he's he's living on his 200-acre farm when wow. this happens. And he's elected by a mainly white electorate. And where are we again? A, where is this? Ohio. Ohio. Rural Ohio. Hmm. Rural Ohio. It's not Boston. <laughs> not New York. <laughs> It's it's rural Ohio. This hmm. is happening, and and some some historians have argued that this was a backlash by whites who were angered by the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. They hmm. were angry at the South trampling on states' well, rights. Well, it still happened. <laughs> it still happened, and they're still saying to an African American man who has this degree from Oberlin, he's he's it's John Langston. He's actually great uncle to Langston hmm. Hughes. The poet. Okay, wow. And he is. They are electing him to oversee them, to rule over them, right? This is not just, this is, this is not a powerless position. These are whites who are saying, yes, we agreed to the project and the proposal of an African-American leading us, hmm. right? And making decisions for us about whatever taxes or whatever in the township. So um, there were... This was a very, very complicated region. I, I sometimes like to say that the, the Civil War was slowly occurring in this region before it ever broke out oh, yeah. in the South, mm. right? This is the conflicts and issues about freedom and equality were being worked out in this region because of this population that the history books most of the history books have denied so let's and, talk, and ignored. Let's talk about that. Now, this all was like before <laughs> kind of the Civil War and all that broke out. So once the Civil War came around, what were free African-Americans in the Northwest doing? Were they participating in the Civil War? How, how, how did they feel in regards to what was going on around that? We'll be right back. For all the ones we lost too soon. One, two. One, two. One, two. Hands high in the air, but this is not a concert, it's a sign of despair. No, I'm not a monster, I'm just out of my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. Make me wonder how I keep from going under with the lions and tigers and bears. Enough to make a cyborg break out into tears. It is not as it appears. They think we all crazy, just unruly niggas and tall babies. But what if these fuck ass officer ball Brady's was killing y'all babies? And the cost of your life was less than the dogs, maybe. You probably call some of your boys ain't had an itch To go a hunting for that something Pop up out that bitch Like, go ahead and drop it Nothing you do can stop it Please don't knock it Cause my pocket's feeling that Doberman pinch Anything from candy to cigarettes Can get a nigga killed But I'll be honest, man I'm running out of shit to feel I ain't trying to tell my biz But I got the blues And I watch the news Like, nigga, what the fuck I'm supposed to tell my kids So fuck your city ordinance This is for the flourishing So hot in her And that's where the West floors We seem to keep them shooting Bring the chorus in For real
unless you judge me by the way I dress my name in sex and think that I'm on the way to display your best. Since 9-11, I've been off the plane detained at best. My name's Amir Muhammad, no officer, I ain't change it yet. My father came in 76, not to get your job, but to get a job. See, we ain't make the A-bomb and we don't want... So once the Civil War came around, what were free African-Americans in the Northwest doing? Were they participating in the Civil War? How, how, how did they feel in regards to what was going on around that? They they felt pretty personally invested. Mm-hmm. So these these propertied African American pioneers by this time, by the time the Civil War broke out, these were second or third generation on the land. Yeah, right. Wow. This is this are these are really established farms and farmers. And while most historians have lost sight of this population, America as a whole knew that it was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was shift it was shaping national and state policy. Mm-hmm. So when the Civil War broke out, and in 1863, when it was finally decided that African-American men could fight in the Civil War, East Coast recruiters for African-American regiments, and we're talking about the Massachusetts 55th and 54th, we're talking about Pennsylvania and Rhode Island-based regiments, mm-hmm. are running out to the Midwest as fast as they can to these communities that they know are out there to recruit these African-American farmers to fight. Mm. And so most of the Lyles men in uh, Lyles, what is now Lyles Station in southwestern Indiana, were recruited and fought in an extremely effective uh, African-American uh, colored regiment that was in Rhode Island, based in Rhode Island. Oh. Um the, there was a Pennsylvania regiment that recruited a lot across Indiana. The Massachusetts regiments went to Ohio, but it's it's even more complicated than that. So each of these states had their own regiments. Michigan had the Michigan First, uh, called the 102nd USCT. Uh, all of these states had their own uh, colored regiments that were fighting the Civil War. And these these men were not digging latrines. These mm-hmm. men were seeing active duty. Mm-hmm. These were men who were fighting, who were taking up arms to try to win freedom for all, for all. Americans. Mm-hmm. And they are personally invested in this because many of them still have kin. Many of them still have friends yeah. who are enslaved in the South. Right. Um one of the a particularly heartbreaking story I, I recount in my first book, A Stronger Kinship, is uh, uh, the story of William F. Connor, who watched his aunt while they were pioneering. This is a real problem for African-American free pioneers, is that you could lose your freedom just trying to get to the frontier mm. um, because there were so many whites who were willing to kidnap you. Right. I mean, it's, it, it, during the slave period, any person with dark skin is basically wa- walking wealth. Right. You know? yeah. a, a healthy African-American male, even if he and his family have been free for 200 years, 200 you know, generations, right. once they start walking towards the frontier, yeah. all of a sudden that's like $700, $600, yeah. $1,000 just on two feet, right? Mm. In terms of how some whites are thinking of it. Exactly, yeah. So... Um, but William F. Connor, as a little boy, in, in a wagon train, leaving North Carolina to go up to the Indiana frontier, watched his auntie kidnapped mm. because she lost her free papers. Mm. And 
they came very close as a family on the Ohio River to having an entire group of them kidnapped and sold into slavery, even though they had been wealthy and landed um, African-American farmers in North Carolina before they left. And so when he took up arms to fight in the Michigan 1st Colored Regiment, he knows exactly who he's fighting for. He's fighting for his aunties. He doesn't know where she is. But he's going there to fight for his auntie's freedom, right? So this is, I believe this kind of story is repeated across the Midwest. Mm, yeah, that, that's, that's, that makes sense. So, so once the Civil War was over, was there a big backlash to all these free African-Americans in the Northwest Territory? They went to go fight? Here's the weird thing. We think about Reconstruction. We think about the South, right? Mm-hmm. And we think about Reconstruction, that period of brief blossoming of equal rights Mm -hmm. in the South and freedom. And then the backlash of Jim Crow, right? right? But the South actually, I would argue, the South took its legal roadmap from the Midwest and the North. Oh, wow. Because the Midwest and the North went through that kind of pattern. Yeah, makes sense. A little different, a little different, Mm -hmm. because it was a slow emancipation. It wasn't immediate. Mm -hmm. Ira Berlin calls it the slow emancipation. Hmm. Uh, as st- as slave states in the North started to tip towards freedom, mm-hmm. and more and more people became free, and then they started to rise. And so what had started off for a generation or two as legally instituted equality for blacks and whites, voting rights, equality under the law, all of this, there starts to be a slow backlash, and it's very slow in some cases. Mm-hmm. So um, in North Carolina, free and landed African-Americans could vote until 1838. Mm-hmm. Same time, Pennsylvania and North Carolina, both whites in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, reverse and steal the right to vote from property mm-hmm. to African-American men the same year. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> right? So this is, this is a, national, a national thing that's happening. And um, what these states are doing, we think of the Midwest today as the flyover zone, but it was so, there was so much national focus on this region before the Civil War. When, when California was being formed into a state and white men were gathering to talk about California's first state constitution in 1849, they are talking about Illinois, Illinois' new state constitution of 1848, which banned African-Americans from immigrating further, further immigrating into that state. Mm-hmm. So this is this is having a national impact. So the Midwest and the North had already had its rising and its backlash by the time the Civil War had broken out. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And in some ways, I, I this may sound like a lot to say, but you know, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by Booth, mm-hmm. who was a Southerner pro-slavery Southerner. But that last speech by Lincoln, which he, of course, thought was his first speech after the ending of the Civil War, Hmm. he touches upon the possibility of equal voting rights. Hmm. He touches upon it for blacks. And I've often said it could have just as easily been a white person from Illinois, from Lincoln's own home state, of Illinois or Indiana that shot him that day because there were white supremacists in those states who were violently opposed 
to equal voting rights, who had already stolen those rights from the African-Americans, their African-American neighbors, and were intent upon keeping those African-Americans from those rights. And this is where it gets, this whole north-south divide gets so complicated because so much of our thoughts about this nation are shaped today by the Civil War. Mm. But what was happening before the Civil War is a completely is it's been almost corrupted yeah. by the conversation that was occurring after the Civil War, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. I think the thing about your book that can help like the generations today, the people today, is the importance of voting. This book really mm-hmm. shows the importance of voting and, you know, how once it's stripped away, the consequences of that. And a lot of people today think, well, you know, when I vote, then no one's going to hear my voice anyway, or, or, or what have you. But if they know that how important it was for the jealous people to take the votes away from African Americans, they can realize why it was so, why it's so important today to vote. Because with that vote, there's a lot of power, and you can see that with these uh, successful, wealthy uh, black communities and what they can do with that. Absolutely. And and also, you know, in in my book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, I lay out the fact that in the in for the founding generation of this nation, the founding citizens of this nation, black or white, and the founding citizens of this nation, they they were African descended as well. They fought in the American Revolution as Mm -hmm. patriots, and they believed in this project of equality that for the Northwest territory, for this region that we now think of as the Midwest, the ideal of equality under the law and equal voting rights is a founding ideal. Yeah. So anything that came after is a reversal mm-hmm. of those best revolutionary ideals of our nation, revolutionary ideals that African descended people fought and died for right. during the American Revolution. Right. <laughs> so these are these are rights that were established initially. We're talking about long before, you know, the 1960s, mm-hmm. and what was going on in uh, Memphis or yeah. in Arkansas, right? Starting in the 18th century, right. in this nation, African Americans were citizens in the vast majority of this nation right. and a white a, a white majority stole those rights from them but that does not mean that that is not the founding ideals for many african americans and whites that lived in our and were our founding generation if that makes sense no no i think when when i was reading it and how people really honored the ideals and the words of the declaration of independence it's it's weird i try to connect things from there to today and i'm thinking like colin kaepernick taking a knee because of the national Mm. anthem if Mm. (laughs) the ideals that he's trying to espouse is exactly what they were doing back then Right. But everybody's right. mad at what he's doing. He's he's actually doing what we were doing in the 1800s. Uh, right. uh, ex- exercising or even the those 1700s, ideas. Or the 1700s. Right? Yeah. Sorry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And it's so here's here's one of the things. And it's been this way for a long time. It feels like it's been this way practically since the beginning of this 
country, but terms like radical, liberal, conservative are bandied about a lot, Mm -hmm. right? But if, if we think about the nation in this way, if we think about the truth of the founding of this nation, the mm-hmm. best ideals of the Northwest Territorial Ordinance, all of a sudden ideas about conservative, radical, maybe segregation is a radical concept. Hmm. Maybe racial equality is a, conserv- is a constitutionally conservative project, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, that it's so often whites who call themselves conservative um, attack um, those who are actually trying to uphold some of the earliest and best ideals of the founding of this nation hmm. is being radical. Hmm. Mm-hmm. When in reality, as I try to make clear in, in my book, the, those were actually kind of old-fashioned ideals <laughs> by the time that they were starting to be disrespected and reversed in the 1820s and 1830s. And it's haunting, it's haunting how white supremacist politicians in the 1820s were openly scornful of the Declaration of Independence. So we have all this weird stuff like about the Declaration of Independence, about the flags. It's sort of arising in our culture at the moment. But what we have to understand is that it's, it's white supremacist politicians who are of a newer generation in the United States who are fighting for Missouri to become a slave state, right, in the 1820s. And I've got their quotes right in my book. They are literally saying, you know what? The Declaration of Independence isn't true. Why? Because it's not true that all people are created equal. We just don't believe that. (laughs) We believe that some people who have dark skin are not equal to people who have white skin. (laughs) So they they are openly mocking, publicly mocking the Declaration of Independence. And so... I'm sure you saw this, but I, I've titled each of my chapters after a quote from the Declaration right. of Independence. Right, yeah, I saw that. Or the yeah. Bill of Rights. <laughs> yeah, that was... Just, just to remind readers that, that these are not foreign values mm-hmm. to people of African descent. These are the founding values and the founding people of America. African-descended people are, are, are part of... Are, are core and central to the American story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I actually was really inspired by the work of Daniel Allen, who is now at Harvard, who wrote a wonderful book. I think it's called We the People, but it's a history of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, she's actually a brilliant philosopher, uh, a classical scholar, but uh, she picks apart the wording of the Declaration of Independence to reveal that the writers of that document really were talking about equality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're really, they're really doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book and it's a great, it's a great and entertaining read too. We'll be right back. People get liberated. Get up on your feet. If you got the feeling. Hey. Get up on your feet Have to aim to please or be a certain way. 
out to any of the relatives of the African-American pioneers today? Thank you for asking that question. I could not have written this book without them. Mm. How do they feel? I want to be very, very clear. The the descendants of these African-American pioneers, this is their story. I'm I'm just the reporter and I really, really try to do justice to them. So I have to admit, you know, I'm absolutely delighted that the Smithsonian did a feature and um, that the Daily Mail in England, the newspaper in England did a big feature on this book. But what really, and that, you know, there's, it's been getting really good reviews, but what really matters to me is when descendants of these families that I know said, you, you did, you did a good job yeah. because I, I had to get it right for them. It, they, over over the years that I've worked on this book, I got to know many of them very well indeed. I could, and they have actually been on the land in Ohio and in Indiana and in Western Wisconsin and Michigan. Some of them are still there. Mm, okay. In fact, in southwestern Indiana, African Americans have been farming the land in Gibson County for over two hundred years wow. since before statehood. Um, so they are still there. They are still facing oftentimes facing unbelievable and terrifying and difficult racism. Oh, really? um, racism that we have a tendency to ascribe to the South, mm. but is alive and well in the Midwest. But they, they have survived. They're still on the land. They're still farming. They still preserve their history and their stories within their families. And I would not have been able to tell this history because this history has been so buried. And yeah. it took going to the basement of county courthouses to go through 200-year-old land deed records to find a lot of this. But it also took people, you know, that I've known for years saying, you know what, my great auntie's been doing genealogy for a while. You should talk to her. Here's Hmm. her email address. Um, Or, you know, we're we're just doing a little digging around, and we're finding that we think there may be, you know, our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War. You should check that out. Hmm. And, And just digging. You know, just with with their assistance and with their help, this um, this was definitely this took. That's why there's 80 pages of citation. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I was very careful to acknowledge gratefully my debt to these incredible descendants of these families who also have amazing stories themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And I I was wondering, you know, is there any push to make any of the land that's still owned by these relatives, like considered like heritage sites, you know, to keep them going, you know, to preserve that history? Or are there just forces that just are trying to stop that? 
this is this is a really tough topic, and I'm actually in conversations with the National Park Service now um, about this challenge. But there are definitely there have been attempts by descendants who still live in the area to preserve and celebrate this history as it still exists, whether it's a, a mansion, a, a, you know, a 200-year-old barn, um, a, a beautiful old schoolhouse. They are working. The, the problem is, is that descendants of some of the whites in these areas that were trying to burn these families out uh. or actually even lynched members of these families in the 1870s or killed them, are still in that area, wow. and there are some some um, there. Are very, there's very strong resistance to this history. I mean, there's resistance on a national level and on a local level wow. uh, because the idea that African Americans succeeded and rose earlier, and in some cases more successfully than whites, on our nation's first frontier, is a bit of a game changer. Yeah, um, it is the truth. But it is also um, a truth that makes some people uncomfortable. Right. So what I know is that there are certainly African Americans who are working to tell their histories in these regions, to preserve them, whether in uh, Cheyenne Valley in western Wisconsin, in Lyle Station, Indiana, in Dark County in Ohio and Randolph County, Indiana. There are people who are struggling to do this, but it is a struggle. Uh, one example that I know of is in Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo, Ashtamo Township was its first settler, non-native settler, was African-American family, the Harrises. Hmm. He was a veteran of the War of 1812 in Ohio. He and his wife, Deborah, had settled the Ohio frontier uh, before the War of 1812. He had fought in the War of 1812, and it survived it, became a very successful farmer on his own land in Ohio. It was actually neighbors with uh, a man called John Chapman from Massachusetts, whose school children now know as Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> and, yep, and he received his land grant for having fought as a patriot in the War of 1812, and it was roughly 400 acres in Michigan, lower oh. Michigan. So he and Deborah and their large family moved up before statehood, we're talking around 1827, into this region, and right off the bat, had over 400 acres of land. Hmm. And given the fact that they knew John Chapman, uh, were some of the first to plant an apple orchard in that region of Michigan, which of course is now famous for its apples, right? So they have this incredible legacy, and they are the, some of the earliest frontiers. So as whites start moving into the area, that almost becomes like an inn. It's like it's the only really nice house mm. around for sort of miles around. And the white man who would later become the first governor of New Mexico talks about in his diaries staying with the Harrises, being served tea and you know in their beautiful dining room by Deborah mm. <laughs> on the frontier. Right. Wow. So this is this is the Harrises. By the early two, by the 1960s, Ashtomo Township had become redlined. So this is a township that was founded and settled by African Americans. Mm-hmm. But by the 1960s, in order to buy land, piece of property in a house in much of Ashtomo, the landee literally said, "No person, no black person, can 
own purchases property or work on this property unless in the as in the capacity of a servant. Wow. This is the 1960s, mm-hmm. right? And then in the early 2000s, there's a, an attempt to preserve this beautiful old farmhouse owned by the Harris family. And in 2006, the White Township government asks the fire department to burn that house to the ground. Oh, my gosh. So this is one example, I'm afraid, of very, very many. Mm. Um, People sometimes ask me, why is this history that I write about in the bone and sinew of the land? Why has it why has it been ignored? Why has it been denied? Right. And and part of it is because the physical evidence for it is continues to be destroyed. Right. Right. So um, you you right. have you did some stuff in the um, the uh, museum uh, the Smithsonian Museum of uh, African and African American history. Um, yes. And if you can describe to us, if we were to go to see that, what 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 would be there? Okay, so um, I would certainly encourage people to go. It's a, it's a wonderful museum. Uh, my largest exhibit that I worked on with Dr. Paul Gardulo, uh, curator at the Smithsonian, is on these African-American pioneers to the pre-Civil War Midwestern mm-hmm. frontier. It's up on the third floor, so it's not down underground. It's up on the third floor, on the same floor as the sports exhibit. Mm-hmm. And there are two historical sections up there where the historical curators were basically allowed to pick some of what they thought were the most unusual and cutting-edge and important aspects of American history that could not be included downstairs. Mm -hmm. So things like the Tulsa Race War Mm -hmm. of the um, 20th century, Mm -hmm. which actually has a haunting resemblance to the race wars that broke out in the cities of the North. That's what I was thinking as I was reading. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, but there's an amazing exhibit there about that. But um, there's a very large exhibit, and what you will see are photographs, so many photographs of wealthy African American farmers from southwestern Indiana. So the story is told through the story of Lyle Station, mm-hmm. where African Americans have been farming and owning land for over 200 years. So we have all these visions in our head about what country, black country life looks like, right? We think country, right? Mm-hmm. And it's Southern sharecroppers, right. dispossessed, disenfranchised, poor, right? All of that. Mm-hmm. This is a different narrative. Mm. So this is a narrative of African-American wealth and success on the land. Um, and now, obviously, African-Americans were arriving there before photography was invented. Mm-hmm. So we're not, you're not going to see photographs of, of Kizia and Charles Greer because... Yeah. They were born in the 18th century, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I don't believe there's any portraits that survive. I would love to find one. Oh, but yeah. wow. um, but uh, there are photographs of their descendants, okay. of the, the sort of third, fourth, fifth generation of farmers. Okay. These are photographs from 1900, 1910, 1920. People in front of their, like 1900, people in front of their beautiful new car. This is when hardly anybody owned a car, right? Yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, right. Or in front of their uh, a dozen mule teams in front mm-hmm. of their beautiful home and their and their gorgeous barn, mm-hmm. um, dressed in in uh, uh, formal gowns and furs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a different kind of image of what uh, of of 
through black country folk, right? And that is, it's it's a real problem because one of the myths is that African Americans in the North were urban. Right. African American wealth and success was urban. Right. Uh, but actually, African Americans in the countryside of the Midwest, even by 1890, were so successful. W.E.B. Du Bois, in his first project, he was still a graduate student, did a project for the federal government going through the 1890 census to look at African-American farmers. And what he found was that even after all of the backlash in the Midwest, in 1890, African-American farmers owned more land and better land Mm -hmm. than any other farmers in any other region of America. Wow. (laughs) So this is a national legacy, for sure. I mean, I I, I think having some of this pictures whatever in the museum is very crucial after you said that they're starting to destroy some of these the real estate to get rid of to get rid of this history i'm glad that the smithsonian is making sure there's an exhibit that there is some evidence that this is there because we don't even learn about it so if even if it came to the forefront and all the evidence is gone people are going to think it's like a conspiracy so it's good that there is some kind of evidence and i'm very glad it's being preserved there but you know there are people on the ground working to preserve this history and good. there are still there are still places you can visit that mm. have this history and evidence and i would encourage people to go out there um, to visit to visit these communities to see you know they can see them right on the map in the front of my book mm-hmm. um, and uh, there are still some that, that definitely exist. And if you would like, I can send you links to oh, put up please. with your podcast yeah. that show some locations where African-Americans still have uh, are working to celebrate and talk about this history, whether we're talking about the Driftless region of western Wisconsin or uh, rural southern Michigan or southwestern Indiana, African-Americans on the ground are working to preserve and celebrate this history. And these are sites that are well worth visiting. They are moving and wonderful. And I would encourage your listeners to to think about this, adding this to their concept of what America was before the Civil War mm-hmm. and, and what America is, because so much of what we're still struggling with in this nation is ideas about who belongs and who doesn't, whether it's in a Starbucks Right. Driving down a road, mm-hmm. and this is a legacy of the, it's like a lot of that is a legacy of this pre-Civil War history that our nation is still working to confront. If you had to lay this out, I mean, just maybe in in a paragraph or so, what do you want the reader to really take away from this book? We'll be right back. I said you got to believe in yourself. I said you got to believe. I said you got to believe in yourself. So you will achieve. I said you got to believe in yourself. I said you got to believe. I said you got to believe in yourself. And soon you will achieve. Remember, kids, you can do what you wanna do. Make you a plan and jot it down with a number two. And don't forget where you come from, the streets will humble you. Then jealous ones will less remind you, try and slumber you. Look, don't let no one judge you who don't love you. Feathers ruffled, remember it starts with self place, nothing above you. Some will call it selfish, don't listen and keep pushing. That new whip from your hard earned work, just keep pushing. Never forget the time you put in your craft. The late nights are busting your ass and saving all your cash. Don't let them make you feel bad for sitting in that jag. Cause ain't no better feeling than he who laughs last. 
I said you got to believe in yourself. I said you got to believe. I said you got to believe in yourself. And soon you will achieve. I said you got to believe in yourself. What do you want the reader to really take away from this book? That there is still so much history that we don't know. That there is, this is an entire field that not only needs to be learned, but reclaimed. And it is... This book is just the tip of the iceberg. This book is just the tip of the iceberg. And the connections, I would really encourage, I know you're based in Georgia, but I would encourage your listeners not to think of North versus South, not to think in terms of the region, but to think, or not even in terms of sort of black history and white history. This is American history. This is national history. Mm -hmm. What was happening in this region, the history that's in this book, affected every single state in the South, that there were free African-Americans before the Civil War in owning property and succeeding in Georgia, in Tennessee, in Arkansas. I, I mentioned some of them in North Carolina. This is a national narrative that needs to be, um, needs to have more light shed on it. And so even if your listeners um, don't feel like reading the book, I hope they'll, they'll, they will take away something from this podcast and tell other people mm -hmm. because it cannot be ignored and it cannot be silenced if we start talking about it. All right. I want to say that this book was so eye-opening to me. It, it really shifts the way I, I look at America, you know, and, and, and African-Americans' um, contribution to this nation is significant. You know, we always talked about how they always say like black people, African-Americans can't really run a community or look at their economy. No, <laughs> since the beginning, I mean, we, that we were the foundation of many of the communities in economy, in the economy of this United States. And it shows what really aggressive violence, racist activity can do to hamper that. So it shows, it shows African-Americans agency, what we can do, when we are treated as human beings, right? And I would, I would argue that African-descended people in America are fundamental and core to some of the best things that have happened in this nation, mm -hmm. um, whether it's the winning of the Civil War or the settlement of this region and the struggle for equality for all people. Mm -hmm. uh, I even have an entire chapter where I talk about the fact that African-descended people in the Midwest were prioritizing family over profit when mm. whites, when when white men were in the, in the enslaving South, were literally selling their own children right. to make money. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, African descended people were rejecting that model, and so all of this stuff about we just have to keep remembering that. So that that racism affects infects mm -hmm. the way we think about the past and to that if if there is if if history is being used to denigrate a group of people um 
that needs to be questioned because the history of African descended people is fundamental, foundation, foundational, and it is a history of extraordinary success, perseverance, grit, and truly revolutionary values that we still need to do a better job of, of adhering to today. Right. Well, Dr. Annalisa Cox, I'm going to say thank you so much for this book and please continue with your research because uh, this is groundbreaking and, you know, we, we, we need more people like you to bring this to the surface. Well, this is definitely the tip of the iceberg and I hope that more people will be inspired to, to do this research and yes. do this work. And thank you so much for having me on today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Annalisa Cox about her book, Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. I meant this is such an important book. We don't hear about this narrative of successful black pioneers, the foundation of this country, fighting for the equality and the rights that are being expressed before and during and a little after the Declaration of Independence. These people are the foundation of the country, and this narrative is missing. And once you understand this narrative, you start to understand all the other stuff that's going on in our country and how it led to what it's, and, and how it led to where it is now. So it, I highly recommend that you guys read this book, and the links are in the show notes. You know, it, it, it will only help get the stories out of these black pioneers, of these founders of our nation. Okay, so um, go inside the show notes, purchase the book, and, and let, let's get this word out. Okay, um, and also while you're in the show notes, go ahead and click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And until next time, let's read, listen, explore.